Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. Over the last couple years on the show, we have occasionally done episodes devoted to church history. We've been faithful to walk you from the first century all the way up to about the 15th century is where we're at now. And we've done that with Pastor Greg Axe, a professor of church history here at LFBI and pastor at Crest Bible Church here in the Kansas City area. And he is our in-house expert. He is the man that uh, that, that helps us understand in a very simple way uh, the way in which God has worked over the last couple of millennia and how him and uh, Satan are basically in a chess match uh, to control uh, what is going on in the church and, and how effective God's mission is in this world. And so he's been painting that picture with us uh, off and on over the last couple years. It, you may be familiar with this, but Living Faith Books has published uh, Greg Axe's book, Church History. This is available on Amazon, and you can find this uh, very easily on lffellowship.com or lfbi.org. Uh, but this book has been an asset to many, many people, and it is a very easy read and an easy way of understanding uh, what God has been doing in his church uh, up to this point in time. And so we recommend that, but we also recommend you hang out with us as we get into the Reformation today. And so we're going to be talking specifically about the Reformation, which is a period in time in which there was a revolution in the church. The common man was beginning to understand the Bible for the very first time, and they were realizing the things that they were being taught uh, were wrong and that they were being misled by governmental and religious powers. And so uh, today we're going to be introducing you to the Reformation and the pioneers associated with with bringing in the Reformation. And so, of course, to do that, we have Pastor Greg Axe. Good Welcome. to be here today, Welcome as always. To yes. Yeah, we always have a good time hanging out yep. and talking about this stuff. Last time we were together, we were talking about the Inquisition, right. which was kind of a, a dark period mm -hmm. in church history. Um, remind us a little bit about what we were talking Very about. Very much so, because it was that time period in which the Catholic Church basically was seeing the dawning of this, mm -hmm. uh, what we call the Reformation, and they wanted to lock everything down. So the Inquisitions were basically, if you were suspected of having any sort of knowledge of the Bible or any sort of different thought than the, uh, than the church allowed at that time, uh, you could be arrested in the middle of the night for nothing. And most of the victims of the Inquisitions were Catholic themselves mm -hmm. because they were just trying to keep everybody under. It was a reign of terror, unlike any in history. I mean, if you see those kind of things today with political correctness here or even Islam and uh, their control of, of the mind and those kind of things, it was nothing compared to the way it was under the Inquisitions. Mm. Torture, and it was ugly. Now, you mentioned, you know, there was, there was a dawning and yes. there's a light, there's truth that's coming. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm looking forward to us being able to talk about that today and introduce the Reformation. Yep. Um, but I think before we get too far into the characters and, and the pioneers of the Reformation, I think it's important mm -hmm. that we talk about the waning of the Catholic Church and, and the things that were contributing to uh, maybe, maybe the Catholic Church becoming more vulnerable, susceptible mm -hmm. uh, to change. A little light is seen in pitch darkness a lot clearer than anything else. And mm -hmm. so there was a lot of things going on at that time. Uh, primarily, the Catholic Church had had such a lockdown on the world for so long that it it wears thin after a particular point in time. And the abuses and the, and the perversion and uh, of 
the Holy Father. Um, we look at that today and we see this guy that, you know, is dressed in robes and mm-hmm. stuff. And, right. uh, and, and the outward persona of that is this righteousness and, and peace and all those kind of things. But at that time and for, for so many years, the, the papacy and the priests and the uh, cardinals and bishops and all the hierarchy of the Catholic Church dominated the world, and they were incredibly perverse. Mm-hmm. And that type of abusive mindset does not last for a long period mm-hmm. of time. This one lasted for a millennium, a thousand years. Man, a thousand years is a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And it just finally got to the point where it was it, the wickedness and the horrible things that were going on at that time finally got to the point where people were looking at this going, man, if that's God, uh, there is no God. Right. You mentioned the the governments that had previously been allied to mm-hmm. the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. those relationships were beginning to wear thin. Right. One of the things that I think is important to take note of is that is that there's a rise in secularism, part of it because mm-hmm. of the, the waning reputation of the papacy, but also governments were highly motivated to make themselves more profitable. What, why is it that so much of our uh, financial resource and power is being, you know, defaulted to the Catholic Church, we're seeing the Roman, you know, the Holy Roman Empire is beginning to to dissipate. And then we're Mm -hmm. seeing the rise of more nationalistic power. Yes. Germany, France, Italy, Spain, these are independent countries Mm -hmm. for the most part. And again, during that time, that's what was happening is that they were, wait a minute, this is our country. Why are we you know, giving everything here to this one guy in Rome right. that's trying to run the entire world. Alexander the Sixth yeah. uh, was in power um, mm-hmm. in about 1493 to the early 1500s, right? And he, in particular, ha- had this reputation of wickedness. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Because I think he's an important part of he, this pivot. He is, and this guy was a, a moral uh, wasteland to mm-hmm. put it. <laughs> kindly, several uh, open relationships with women and their daughters mm. uh, at the same time, conducted in, um, I think it was 1501, uh, on Halloween, a massive Vatican orgy with just bringing all the temple nuns and uh, have have your way with them in front of people. Uh, it was it's It's almost difficult to talk about because it was so disgusting. And, but this is the type of moral perversion that went on in, during this particular time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not the only one. There were several others uh, throughout this time that were like that. That type of moral perversion, people are looking at that going, wait a minute, is this really the godly church that's, that Jesus founded? That dichotomy right. Right. just stark, stark difference could not be... Um, uh, captured by the people, mm-hmm. and, and and they begin to question that. And then there's also this factor of like you know back to this idea that that there was a separation between the national state mm-hmm. and the Catholic Church was beginning to arise. Uh, the each individual state wanted to perform taxation that would benefit their state, of course, right? So they they want to pave the roads and they want to modernize their cities and mm-hmm. build infrastructure. And of course, kings also want power and wealth as well. Of course. 
But that came in direct conflict with indulgences and the amount of money and resource that was being poured into uh, the reign of the papacy. And so what, tell us a little bit about indulgences. What are they and, and, and how are they being enacted um, and how are they wearing on people? I mean, the, the idea of indulgences were, was becoming a very, very difficult thing for people, common people to stomach. Primarily it began with this concept called purgatory that is not biblical at all. The word's not found in the Bible. The concept's not found in the Bible. The idea's not even found in the Bible of people paying for their own sins for a period of time and then getting out of what mm -hmm. they call short-term hell, if they want to call it that. But it's something that the Catholic Church came up with generations earlier, um, a thousand years before that. And then they start using that to extort money from, <clears throat> from the people. So if you have this concept called purgatory where deceased Catholics who have some sin in their life, when they're deceased, they have to pay for that sin in what they call uh, uh, purgatory or short-term hell for yeah. lack it's of a better it's term. bail money. Yeah. Then the the priest and the, and, and the popes and, and the cardinals would go to the to the people and say, you know, for, for X number of dollars, we will pray uh, for your deceased loved ones and shorten their, their suffering mm -hmm. in hell or purgatory and get them out quicker if you would give us enough money uh, for this. And so they would say masses for the dead and they would do those kind of things mm -hmm. that would uh, tend to, to, obviously, if, you know, if your husband has died and you're grieving his loss and you're thinking that he's suffering if there's in any purgatory, chance that he's in purgatory what can what you know can, uh, and if i can get him out of there of course i'm going to help out as much mm -hmm. as i possibly can so a guy would pass away um and the catholic church would go to the widow and extort all of her money until she was broke and then say okay well your husband's out of purgatory now mm -hmm. uh, oh okay thank you very much well now she's destitute and yeah. the catholic church has all the money right that was one form of indulgence you pay us and we will help indulge the sins of your dearly departed well that then morphs into how can i indulge the sins that i'm committing now mm -hmm. um rather than just the purgatory thing. So a lot of the um, popes, people, priests, and things like that as well were got that concept. They said, well, we'll just go ahead and forgive your sins now if you'll pay us enough money. Right. Yeah. So now they're, now they're, they're selling indulgences um, lock, stock, and barrel to pay, throughout this to pay, time. To pay for the sins you committed last week. Yeah, last week. Okay. Now this, I mean, this idea, it plays on a concept that still exists um, in the Catholic Church today. And that is uh, that there are things that must be done in order to earn God's favor, yes. right? It's the concept yes. of, of works-based salvation. Yeah. And so that was manipulated for the sake of indulgences. But even today, the Catholic Church uses that concept, leverage that concept that you can't have certainty. You can't have certainty about your salvation. Right. You won't know until, you know, until you close your eyes for the last time right. where it is that you're headed. And by the way, the only one that can offer you any sense of surety whatsoever is us. Right. right. And so you that's have to that, stay in the church. That concept still yeah. Exists today. It still exists. It's the it's penance. It's confession. Mm -hmm. You bring your sins to the priest and confess them. He tells you what penance you're supposed to do for that. 
<clears throat> well, that penance now is not necessarily paying money to the church. Right. Well, I'm sure I'm sure it still goes on. Mm -hmm. In the dark ages, it was it was dominant throughout that yeah. time. You pay money to the church, that is your penance, and then we will absolve or forgive your sins because we claim to have the power to be able to do that when only Jesus can do that. Mm. Um, and then it morphs even further beyond that, and this is where it gets really evil and really wicked, is what, what I call cash in advance. Um, we will give you an indulgence ahead of time for the sin you're going to commit later mm -hmm. if you'll pay us enough money now. That was made very popular during the Crusades. The popes would grant indulgence ahead of time for anybody that volunteered for the Crusade to, to go and kill Muslims for, for, the, for Holy Mother mm -hmm. Church. And so we'll absolve your sin ahead of time. And <clears throat> that becomes evil and wicked as well. Where if you want to do something contrary to, to natural law, you just go to the priest, say, here's a here's hundred bucks. Can I do? And they'll say, yeah, sure, no problem. I'll, I'll absolve your sin before you commit it. Uh, and that was going on wow. as well. All of that stuff just drains all the assets because, I mean, that's important to people, right? Mm -hmm. To have, I mean, yeah, your life is important, but knowing where you're going to, having your sins forgiven and having a home in heaven, that's really, really important in people's lives. Mm -hmm. And again, as you mentioned, the Catholic Church did this in such a way to, that it's works-based and it's centered in the Catholic Church only. Uh, that's the only form of salvation, the only means of salvation in the church, and you can't know that for sure. And so that leverage over people's lives and that fear motivation, that bondage that they had them in, just mm -hmm. sucked all the life and all the resources out. Well, the people are now destitute. The governments are destitute because they can't tax the people appropriately to fund what they're doing. Right. It's all going right. in one hole. Yeah. So we've got on the heels of the Crusades, yes. um, in the midst of the Inquisition, uh, you know, in the midst of indulgences and, and the, the, the shift in power between nationalist governments and, and mm -hmm. the papacy, all of these things uh, primed the way, made a way uh, for some pioneers to challenge, yes. challenge what people thought uh, Christianity really was, and, and one of the very first and, and most important names uh, to to the Reformation is John Wycliffe. Right? Can you tell us a little bit about who he is, uh, about his life, and and how he comes into uh, significance? John Wycliffe was a guy in around the middle of 1300s or so who made it his life passion to get the Word of God into the hands of people because he would he, he saw a Bible, he would read that Bible. Um, he was educated enough to know Latin, which was the only language that the Bible was in at that time, the only language of the learned. The common people didn't speak Latin, didn't mm -hmm. know Latin, couldn't go to school and learn Latin, and the Bible was in Latin. And the priest all understood and and that were educated in that language. So they had the control and the corner on the truth. Right. You have to come to us to get the truth, and we'll tell you what it is, and we'll dole just a little bit of it out. Right. Uh, as we see it, we'll give you what we want you to have. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so he began to read the Bible and go, wait a minute, what you're telling us and what the book says are two totally different things. Mm -hmm. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to pause right here for just a second so we can hear from one of our students from the Living Faith Bible Institute. My name is Blade Spiza. I'm from Living Faith Lee Summit in the Kansas City, Missouri area. And I just want to share a little bit about LFBI. 
it feels like commercial and I, and I don't want it to be that. I actually want to speak to you just as an individual who loves God and wants to serve God and give your life to Him. LFBI, though it may seem academic, is actually an opportunity for you to have an intimate walk with the Lord. And you know, you go through discipleship, you get involved in ministry, and, and as you continue to grow, God gives you stuff and you begin investing in people. And a lot of times, uh, as you begin investing in people, you, you fail to get fed yourself. And so I know for me, as a growing leader in ministry, I've, I've found seasons in my life that are really dry. And LFBI has been amazing for me just to be reminded of, about how awesome the Word of God is and how faithful God has been and, and how perfect God's Word is for me. And uh, I would just encourage you this semester to, to take on a little bit more. Maybe you're thinking, I don't, I don't have time. <laughs> I, I'm so busy. You know, I, I feel like I'm just doing too much. I want to encourage you that LFBI doesn't have to be academic. You can actually approach God's Word devotionally in that time and trust Him to speak to you in the quietness of a classroom setting. If you're on the fence about LFBI, I just want to encourage you to get started uh, by signing up for a class. If you've never done it, I encourage you to, to hop in maybe to a Bible survey class or foundations. Um, if, if you've been doing LFBI for a little while and you understand the workload, take on a little bit more. Step out in faith. To enroll for classes, visit lfbi.org. To support LFBI, please visit lfbi.org support. And so he was convinced that the only way to uh, unlock the darkness was through the Word of God. The mm -hmm. entrance of thy words giveth light, if giveth understanding to the simple, Psalm 119, verse 130. And so the entrance of the words of God into the lives of people's lives begin to turn the lights on in their life. John Wycliffe is called the morning star of the Reformation. Mm -hmm. uh, that's his title, and it's a very appropriate title for him because you know that when, uh, you know, just in a natural realm, you're at the middle of the night and it gets really, really dark, and then out there on the horizon is that star that rises up, they call the morning star, ahead of the, the sunrise, mm -hmm. uh, and you see the glimmer of that beginning to, to rise, and John Wycliffe did that. He took the Latin Vulgate Bible, which was the Catholic Bible at the time, forbidden of for the people. They were not allowed to read it. <clears throat> and he translated it into English. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. big, big my good. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Yeah. Uh, now we have a problem because mm -hmm. now the people in England and the people who understood English could now read the Bible for themselves and see that what they're being told by the hierarchy is not square with what God said in his book. And mm -hmm. it's like, no, wait a minute. And that fueled a revolution. Of course, he was, dis he, he was despised, hated, persecuted by the Catholic Church. Yeah. And, yeah. And so based upon that, mm -hmm. there was some change, you know, obviously in his perspective on what was and wasn't doctrinal. So he's right. making these discoveries what are some of the things that he was discovering in Scripture that he was espousing and sounding the alarm on? What were the declarations that John Wycliffe was making in these discoveries? Well, that man could have a personal relationship with God, mm -hmm. that it wasn't an institutional relationship, it was an individual relationship, that Jesus died on the cross to pay for 
our sins, that um, you don't have to pay the Catholic Church for your sins because somebody already paid for them, mm-hmm. called Jesus, his blood right. was shed at the cross of Calvary. And he had a group of people that he had uh, won to Christ, that he had trained up, that he had raised in the Word of God, sent them out to preach, and they were called Lollards. And they would go out and just share the simple Word of God with people that this is what the Bible says, mm-hmm. that we uh, that we have sinned, that God will pay for it. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross of Calvary, and if you'll come and trust him and him alone, he can save you from your sin. And that was happening throughout Europe at the time, mm-hmm. and especially in England. Boy, that raised the ire of the Catholic Church right. because it's, again, it's eating away at their control of the mind control of people throughout um, that time. Uh, that was not forbidden. That, that was not allowed. That right. was forbidden stuff, and so they hated him for it as a result. So the Lollards are st- street preachers, yeah, and they're going out. They're declaring the the doctrine of grace, yes. which was a new, really kind of a new idea or new to the people, new mm-hmm. to the masses. That right. this grace thing was the thing that sets them free. That it wasn't works. Mm-hmm. That it wasn't what they did and and how you know how good of a Catholic they were. Right. It was bestowed upon them and it was intended to be received. That was a new concept. So these men are out in the streets preaching this and people are actually beginning to get converted. Of course. And it becomes more and more uh, of an issue that that the Inquisition has to respond. The common man is going to gravitate towards something like that. Mm -hmm. When you when you tell them the truth, it's going to resonate with them. Right. And, and that's what was happening. I mean, I remember growing up in the Catholic Church myself and being told that um, this is the only way. And I, I, I was told when I was a child that if I went into another church building that mm-hmm. I was in danger of going to hell just by walking into another church building. That's the mind control wow. um, <clears throat> that is there upon people. Um, and it... And, and our relationship with God became institutional. It was or, it, it, your, the allegiance to the institution of the Catholic Church is the only thing that matters. Mm. And then you can do, go do whatever it is you want to do and then come confess to the priest. He'll tell you to say a few right. Hail Marys and away you go. Right. And then you just, and, and there's no peace in that. There's no assurance in that. There's no individual relationship with God. There's no Savior that loved you. There's none of that type of stuff. It's oppressive, brutal. Um, mind control yeah. that eventually wears thin in people's lives. And when the Lollards are out there preaching this simple message of salvation by grace through faith and showing people, here's what it actually says in the Bible. See mm-hmm. this for yourself. You mm-hmm. can now read it in your own language and see mm-hmm. what's actually being said in the in the Word of God and contrast that with what they've been told for generations by the, uh, by the priest. It just... It, it lit a fire. Mm, yeah. And it, and it was beginning to have an impact. Much. And people were beginning to listen to Wycliffe, and he was writing a lot, writing arguments mm-hmm. uh, against the Catholic Church's doctrines, yep. one of which that he hit on pretty heavily was the idea of transubstantiation. Yes. That this was one of his his pet battles right. was to go hard at this this doctrine, this idea, this this concept that had originated with the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to us what transubstantiation is and why did why did Wycliffe have such a huge problem with it? Okay, it's a big fancy word, and to try to boil it down simply, trans means you change from one to the other, subs- the substance. 
uh, transubstantiation is changing the substance. So mm -hmm. in the communion service or the what we call the Lord's Supper, we have the elements of bread and wine. Mm -hmm. um, the Catholic Church taught that that bread and wine got transformed into the actual, literal, physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. They still believe that to this day, mm -hmm. that when you partake of the communion, you're actually eating Jesus and drinking his literal blood. But that, that's essentially what the doctrine was and still is even to this day in the Catholic Church, that you are actually eating the literal blood, of the literal body of Jesus and drinking his literal blood, which is obviously cannibalism, which is obviously forbidden throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, mm -hmm. um, which is... Not to mention weird. is cultic and yeah. bizarre and, and Gnostic and, and revolting. I mean, it's a revolting thought. Exactly. Um, Taking words that Jesus said at the Last Supper and in John chapter 6 out of context, yeah. the Bible is very clear, is that this is representative of his body and his blood that was um, on the cross and mm -hmm. his blood that was shed for our sins. Uh, we don't eat and drink it. It's a picture. It's an object lesson of what he did for us on the cross of Calvary. Tell us a little bit about his excommunication and his expulsion from Oxford. He 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 lost his tenure at uh, at Oxford as yeah. well. So he you know there's ramifications for the decisions he's making. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, an excommunication is um, uh, kicking you out of the church, mm -hmm. uh, damning you to hell. Yeah, in their perspective. But you have to look at it under that mindset. Um, today, if we look at that and say, well, somebody's going to get booted out of the church, it's like, well, they'll just go next door to another church. Mm -hmm. Big deal, you know? Right. Being booted out of the only church that there is and, and damned to hell forever, for eternity. It's severe. It feels severe. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's quite a different situation. So it's very difficult for people to, um, to process that. Well, you know, Wycliffe had, had the courage obviously motivated and led by God and by God's word to stand up and say, well, boot me out if you want, yeah. because I have my relationship secure because of what Jesus did for me on the cross of Calvary, that individual personal relationship we have with the Savior because of what he did on the cross for us. Here, you know, here comes the Catholic Church seeing what he's doing, and they excommunicate him, which is like, right, okay. It just further motivated him yeah. to 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 be the rebellious revolutionary that he was, you, to stand you, on the authority of Scripture. Go right ahead. Yeah. Because I broke from you anyway. Right, yeah. Yeah, you can't, you can't fire me because I quit. And this is an important thing to note because there will be many men like him. Mm -hmm. uh, now, he's the first of his kind in, in, in many regards, not that there weren't right. other believers that took the same stance, but had the platform that he, he had, yes. he was one of the, the first to stand up and say, okay, do your worst. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there were there from behind him. There follows many other men who are willing to say the same thing and stand up for the same things. Yes, and the Lollards did the same thing, and many of the many of his converts and his disciples uh, were excommunicated from the mm -hmm. church as well. Councils were uh, convened to condemn the Lollards if they were found. They were arrested and tried, and many of them executed as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, well, okay, fine. So you. Take my life, you send me home to heaven. Right. So, you know, when Wycliffe dies, mm -hmm. the Catholic Church goes and exhumes his body mm -hmm. 
and burns it. What's the significance of that? I mean, what were they, what was it they were trying to communicate? <clears throat> They're trying to communicate that his influence remains after his death, mm-hmm. which is which is awesome for anybody. I mean, if your testimony can outlive you, right. uh, that's that's a good thing. Okay, we're still talking about him. He died mm-hmm. in 1384. This mm-hmm. is 2022. We're still talking about him seven, six, seven hundred years later. Right. Um, his legacy and testimony survives all that time, and they want to go and try to expunge that testimony and say, well, we're going to burn your bones like John Wycliffe is sitting in heaven laughing at it. Right. And it's like, really, this? you go right ahead. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um it doesn't bother me a bit, uh, and all that does is simply further what what he has left behind. Because people look at that and go, well, "So what? You know, so you're burning his bones, big deal." But basically, what they're trying to do is expunge his legacy mm-hmm. um, by that. But it's mystical, spiritual, weird. You know, one of the things that I think is is interesting is after his death, they have this thing called the Constitutions of Oxford in 1408. Right. So, you know, a decade or two after he's passed away, uh, they go way out of their way to establish basically um, laws against reading Wycliffe's writings mm-hmm. um, and and others like him. They're, they're trying to abolish basically any, any of the, the residual printings and the literary works that have been put out in, into the, to the, community, they're trying to do away with that stuff, basically outlaw his teachings. Yes. Yeah. And one of the guys that was behind that was a guy by the name of Bishop Arundel, uh, who had a, a famous quote, I can't pull it completely off of the top of my head, about Wycliffe, basically called him the damnable uh, wretch of, of uh, Antichrist or something like that. And if you've got a Catholic bishop calling you the Antichrist, you're in good company. Yeah, which okay. he was actually, you know, we often... Re- here in our circles, you know, Baptist circles, yeah. we often hear uh, the Pope referred to as the Antichrist. Right. And and a lot of people's eschatology revolves around that concept, in fact. But Wycliffe was one of the very first people to pen that idea yes. that the, the, the Pope himself is a representation of the Antichrist, if not the Antichrist. He really popularized that idea. Mm-hmm. And so for them to come back and refer to him as the Antichrist. It's like a tit-for-tat type thing. You yes, know, it is. Funny. But if I'm anti-Antichrist, right. that, that double negative cancels itself. <laughs> so guess whose side I'm on? Yeah. Uh, so an Antichrist, we we throw the term around as, and of course its main emphasis is that character individual that is yet to rise yeah, on the scene. capital A, Antichrist. Right, right. But Antichrist basically means someone who counterfeits Christ and opposes him by imitating mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. Right. And guess who? Right, exactly. The Holy Father who steals that term that is reserved for God alone. Yeah. So we have another guy, yeah. John Huss, mm-hmm. who is also a big deal, had right. a huge influence. Tell us a little bit about his childhood, his development. He well, he read a lot of Wycliffe's writings mm-hmm. and was um, convinced also from reading the Bible and from reading Wycliffe's writings that salvation was due an individual personal relationship with the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins. Mm-hmm. And he began preaching that doctrine as well in what is today, modern-day Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. uh, part and of the European... And their lives overlap 
Just a little bit. He's a little bit. born in 1372. Mm-hmm. And so he comes, it's almost like the baton has been handed off and he right. just follows right in his footsteps. And Wycliffe dies in 1384, so 12 years or so mm-hmm. that they, but obviously they never met each right. other What personally. But he picked up his writings, began to read some of those kind of things and see what, uh, what an individual personal relationship with Jesus Christ was like. And so he's preaching that in the area that he lives, uh, which is Czechoslovakia. Same problem that you have. He's giving the word of God to the common ordinary man for them to read for themselves and for them to understand for themselves. And it's it's shaking the the institution of the Catholic Church because it is breaking the 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 bondage, breaking the light, uh, turning the light on, and breaking that bondage of people uh, being told what to believe by the Catholic Church exclusively, mm-hmm. don't question us. Here's what it says. Now you just be a good little boy and go right. plant your crops and leave us alone. Yeah, yeah. So they pick up on this mm-hmm. real quick, Yeah. right? They, they weren't deceived the way they were w- with Wycliffe. They didn't expect Wycliffe turning. Right. And they didn't quite know what to do with him. But the Catholic Church had learned a thing or two, um, you know, after Wycliffe. Mm-hmm. They knew that they needed to put this down fast. And right. so um, Alexander V uh, has a papal bull and an excommunication for mm-hmm. Hus. Can you tell us about that? Well, okay. I think we've talked a little bit before about, about a papal, papal bull, bulls, yeah. um, Edicts, which is, um, I think, a, a very appropriate term because it's a papal bull. <laughs> um, and you can fill in the rest of it yourself. But <laughs> actually, it's a shortened for- form of what we would call a bulletin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a bulletin is a notice or a publication. Uh, they post them on the wall at your office or mm-hmm, whatever. Right. Notice, here's right. what you need to do. Uh, and so a papal bull or a bulletin was issued against um, John Huss as a declaration from the Catholic Church that this guy is a heretic, don't listen to what he's saying, and uh, we're going to excommunicate him from the church, which again— Right. It was a death sentence. Yes. In his in his flesh too. Yeah. He wasn't concerned about his eternal security. He was, you know, it, at this point he decides to go into hiding. Right. And to make his influence known through the pen. Yeah. And so after the excommunication, he, he gives his life really to to publishing works uh, that will inf- influence people in the way that they think. And he he has this really influential writing or his most influential writing called on the church mm-hmm. uh, that gets published. Tell us about what is in that and some of the ideas that he's espousing. The basic uh, premise of that uh, of that book is that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, not a man. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, of course, biblical and scriptural, Ephesians chapter 1, Christ is the head of the church. Um, and uh, Ephesians chapter 5, he's the head of the church and the Savior of the body. Uh, from whom holding the head, um, that that is clearly, biblically, um, Jesus is the head mm-hmm. of his church. Well, right. the Catholic Church has stolen that away and claimed that this individual down in Rome now is the head of the church. And it was the, base, the basic thesis of it is that this guy has usurped the position that is intended for God only uh, and for Jesus only and taken it on himself, and therefore he is anti Christ. Mm-hmm. Antichrist meaning opposing him by counterfeiting him. 
right. uh, which is a harder, it's, it's harder to discern that than it is somebody who's completely anti um, or completely opposite. Um, you, that's pretty easy to see. If you've got a um, decent, God-fearing, moral, honest guy over here and somebody over here who's just filthy, moral, disgusting, <laughs> yeah. whatever, you can see that difference. But if you've got somebody who's acting like this right. while doing the other stuff on the side and trying to take this guy's position by stepping into it and claiming that it's his— yeah. You're that, not just anti-good. Yes. You're anti-Christ. Yes. You are trying to take the form of religious, spiritual, pious, holy, but but you're really, you're a liar. You're a sheep, or a wolf in sheep's clothing. Exactly. Exactly. Idea. And that's what he was doing. And that that was the basic thesis of that particular book, is that it was um, that Jesus is the head of the church, not any man mm -hmm. on earth. And of course, that's going to rattle and shake the foundation of the Catholic Church, and they don't like it either. Sure. And, you know, so Huss is hoping mm -hmm. that the Catholic Church will be reasonable enough mm -hmm. to receive him at the Council of Constance. Yes. Because he is, is, is holding out hope that they would be willing to debate him openly some of these ideas that he's teaching. Okay, so excommunicate me, no big deal, but let's try to make some of these ideas public. Let's, let's hold a debate. Let's have a conversation. Right. Let's be reasonable, reasonable about this. Uh, and so he, on his way to the Council of Constance, he's captured by inquisitors. Mm -hmm. Game over. Game over. <laughs> yes. He was promised, and here's another character that comes on the scene, by, uh, a guy by the name of Pope John the Twenty Third. Mm. Um, that at that particular time, again, another moral, disgusting, horrible per. He had 300 nuns in his harem. Mm. Um and it's hard to talk about those kind of things, knowing that mixed company is going to be hearing yeah, this. Yeah. But that's the type of moral pervert that this guy was. He promised John Huss that he would give him safe passage uh, if he would come and, and debate his, his his differences with the Pope. Mm -hmm. Initially, John was like, nah, no. Yeah, I, sounds sketchy. Yeah, I'm not going to do this because I know that if I uh, if I make my way to Rome to answer, I know what's going to happen. And it, eventually he kind of agrees to do that, and that's when this particular, the inquisitors grab him and, and arrest him, and um, no debate was even done. Um, somebody called Pope John Twenty-Third on that and said, hey, I thought you promised him safe passage. And John the 23rd's response was, when you're dealing with a heretic, you don't have to keep your word. Hmm. That's the kind of moral perversion that took place during that time. Mm -hmm. uh, this guy, John the 23rd, was so perverse in, in, in every way imaginable that you can think of that nobody took the, the title of John as a pope for another until my childhood in the 1900s. Oh, is that this big of a difference? 500, 450 or 500 years. Mm. Um, this is one of the dirty little secrets of millions of them in the Catholic Church is that uh, during my childhood, I was born in 1953, one of the popes of my childhood was Pope John Twenty-Third. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever thought about that. Wait a minute. There was already a Pope John Twenty-Third. He, he, he was the replacement. 23rd, John. Exactly. 23rd. And the Pope John the 23rd of, 
he executed John Huss in 1415, just to give you mm -hmm. uh, a historical time frame. We're talking 450 years or so. Nobody took that name for all that time, because that can you imagine how bad you must be? Put it in this context. If your last name is Arnold, are you going to name your son Benedict? <laughs> right. Okay. How many of you are going to look at um, naming your, your son Judas? Right. Okay. The name is anathematized so bad that you just, that nobody would ever use it any longer. Hmm. Um, and so John, John, the Pope John was so filthy anathematized because of what this man did that nobody wanted to take the name. In fact, the Catholic Church today calls John the 23rd from 1400 an anti-pope. They've tried to remove him from their role mm. as Is he the pope. only one that they've done that with? No, they've done it a number of yeah. them um, for various different reasons. They mm -hmm. can't figure out their line uh, completely. But that's, this one they did for that particular purpose because he was so disgusting. And um, and and then this guy comes along in the 1900s, 1958. He became this guy, Pope John the Twenty Third, and that sort of just erases the old erases legacy. the yeah. old legacy and puts the bandaid over mm -hmm. that and makes it kind of respectable. So that's he, how disgusting this guy was. Yeah. So he he imprisons Huss for about eight months. Right. Um, they're insisting that Huss recant. Yes. And that's not going real well. No. Um, and so, you know, near the end, uh, they're they're torturing him. Mm -hmm. They're insisting he, he recant they, because they want a, a, to be able to publicly say, well, Huss has turned away from these ideas. He Even he knows now that, that he was wrong. Um, but he refuses. And I want to read mm -hmm. his response to his inquisitors yeah. uh, here. He says, God is my witness that the things charged against me, I never preached in the same truth of the gospel, which I have written, taught and preached, drawing upon the saying and positions of the holy doctors or, or the saints, I am ready to die today. Yeah. So in other words, he's saying just in the, in, in the same way, the prophets and the saints of old were willing to give them their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and the things that they taught, the, the doctrines of the apostles, I hold to that tradition. And just like them, I'm willing, I'm willing to die today. Yeah. So, so do what, do what you will. Do what you will. And they did. Yeah. And, and execute, burn him at the stake. Can, can, again, we, we've talked about this a number of times through our times together in history. I'm just trying to reinforce this again, how in the world does anybody conscience this? Mm -hmm. How can you possibly, normal human beings, bring themselves to the point of saying, you disagree with me on something, so I'm going to light you on fire and watch you burn mm -hmm. and get some sort of glee and satisfaction out of, out of that? How do normal thinking people Right, match that up with truth and reality. Yeah, I, it's incredible. I, I don't get it. It's incredible. I don't get it. And so from this, of course, the way that all, like with Wycliffe, it was the Lollards. Mm -hmm. With Huss, it was the Hussites. Hussite. There were people that were devoted disciples of his teaching. Mm -hmm. And again, these ideas are beginning to permeate. Yes. Uh, and so who are the Hussites and what were they up to? And, and tell us about their persecution. <clears throat> when, when, when they put John Huss to death... 
because he was beloved where he was in, mm-hmm. in Czechoslovakia, and he's yeah. preaching the gospel, and people are coming to know Christ as their Savior, and they're getting that liberty and that freedom, and they're getting their assurance of, of salvation. It was changing the culture. And, and it changing their hearts and changing their lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, I... I've been saved for a long time, but I still can go back in my mind and remember what it was like to live as a lost person. And now that liberty to know that I have a home right. in heaven with Jesus um, is is like, oh, God. Yeah. It, you can't, that that opens the heart. And so the, it, that's happening throughout the area in which he's preaching. And, and the people, by and large, are are, are loving this, newfound relationship that they have with God aside from the Catholic Church. And when they put John Huss to death, it caused a revolt mm-hmm. where uh, where he had been preaching. Uh, and now it, it's like, well, we killed this guy, we're going to stop this. No, in killing this guy, it lit the fire. Yeah. And it just exploded throughout the time. I'll give you an illustration of that. Um, one time... Many, many years ago, I'm down in my basement and this big old spider is lumbering across the, the, the floor, okay? Mm-hmm. And of course, you do what you would normally right. do in a case like that. I went over <laughs> and stomped on it. It was a mama spider. And I, and there were a, like a hundred little scurrying oh, every place when that oh, happened. Yeah. What bigger, did I do? You had a bigger problem on your hands. And now I got a I got a much bigger problem on my hands. Yeah. Okay. And and that's the unintended consequence of the Catholic Church trying to lock down these people the way that they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, with John Wycliffe, with Martin Luther, we'll talk about later. With with John Huss, with these guys, they put John Huss to, John Huss to death. Here's all the little here's all the little spiders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It just it created a massive problem um, where it was, and it it eventually becomes the forerunner of what are the Moravian missionaries in a, mm. in, in later generations. But, um, yeah, huge, huge impact. Yeah. The common man be, has turned the lights on in his life and his heart. And he starts sharing the word of God with his friends who start sharing it with their friends. And you know what happens. Right. right. So, you know, there are other others that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about the Anabaptists at some yeah. point soon. But there are other people that are following in these same compulsions. They're seeing right. the light. God is actually is working in the lives of many people, not just these men, but many yes. people uh, to reveal to them the authority of his word. Mm-hmm. They're beginning to see it. Now, the Catholic Church spends the next hundred years basically chasing fires, right? You know, trying to put out a wildfire. Mm-hmm. And they are are somewhat successful. They have the ability to, especially in the southern parts of Europe, mm-hmm. to kind of, uh, you know, stifen the 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 fire and, and, and quench it a little bit. But it's it doesn't fully take. And there are there are fires that continue and lead right up to Martin Luther, who we're yep. going to talk about in the next episode. Right. Uh, so maybe just briefly give us a picture of what those the 1500s look like, um, the Gutenberg Press, et cetera, et cetera. And how all of those things were part of the catalyst that would become the Reformation. What other pieces should we, elements should we have, um, you know, to well, think again, about? You got all these little pockets of of stuff that the Catholic Church is trying to trying to mm-hmm. uh, take care of, and they can't. Um, and it spreads from one group to the next. And you mentioned the Gutenberg Press, the without a doubt, the most significant technological. Um, 
invention in the history of mankind, far greater impact than the telephone, mm -hmm. far greater impact than Orville and Wilbur Wright and flight, uh, far greater impact than Henry Ford and the automobile. Um, any of those technological advancements that we've seen, the computer and all that kind of stuff, none of them, they all pale into insignificance of uh, of Gutenberg and the, and the printing press because now they have the opportunity, instead of having to handwrite every single copy of the Bible, mm -hmm. to mass produce the Word of God. The first uh, Bible off, the first book off the press of any significance, uh, Gutenberg's press, was Wycliffe's Bible. Mm -hmm. And now they've got the opportunity to mass produce uh, the Word of God and get it into the hands of the common ordinary man. And that's the entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. Mm. And when the common ordinary man gets a hold of the Word of God, uh, it breaks the back of the Roman yeah. Catholic Church and the hold that they've had on the on the world for a thousand years. Exciting. Yeah. I'm glad we got here. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about the Crusades and the Inquisition, yeah. medieval time. Like, here, here we go. Uh, this, well, is, this is exciting. Well, let's get into the good stuff. Yeah, for real. Yeah. So, yeah. Greg, thank you so much right. for giving us this primer on the Reformation and, and telling us about these characters. In our next episode, we're going to get into Martin Luther and, and talk about uh, his life and his ministry. But thank you so much for, yep. for helping us today. All right. And we want to thank you for joining us for this episode of The Postscript. Again, we want to invite you to take church history at LFBI. If you visit lfbi.org, uh, church history gets taught um, very frequently, maybe every other year in the Bible Institute. So you want to jump in the next time that class is offered. In the meantime... You should uh, get online and uh, and look up Church History by Greg Axe. You can get this book, and, and you can learn about all the things that we've been talking about in these episodes. Uh, we, we really want to encourage you to do that. But we love you, and we hope that you're learning stuff. Um, you know, some people— I, the thing that I've learned is that some people are fanatics about the Greg Axe episodes. That's that's the thing that I'm learning is they love the church history episodes and they wait for these to come out. Uh, share them, share them with your friends, uh, rate the episodes, write reviews, help us to uh, further the podcast. And by doing that, uh, further the, the teaching of God's word and the principles of God's word, uh, as well as uh, promoting the Bible school. But we love you. We're grateful for you. And we're looking forward to seeing you again next week for another episode of The Postscript. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.